The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. So welcome to the Village Zendo's book discussion series. Today, we're very fortunate to have um, Nancy Mujo Baker Roshi. Uh, she is the founding teacher of the No Traces Sangha and a professor emerita of philosophy from Sarah Lawrence College, where she taught for over 40 years. And so without further ado, I would like to invite Mujo Roshi to say a few words, however many words she'd like to say, and then we will move into Q&A and discussion and give everybody an opportunity to say what they'd like. Mujo Roshi. Thank you. Um, should I be on the speaker screen? Let me see. There we go. Okay. Um, hello, everybody. So I I was thinking, you know, my original title for this book was uh, Opening to Oneness with the Zen Precepts. And then Shambhala decided to say, uh, a practical and philosophical guide to the precepts, to the Zen precepts. So I was just thinking um, before my computer glitches here, um, what exactly makes this book philosophical? I mean, there, you know, everybody's got some different idea about what philosophy is and whether Dogen was a philosopher and so on and so forth. And it occurred to me, and this is the kind of philosophizing I'm used to, but I never thought of it this way. It, it's simply about connecting things that we are, we Zen students, we Zen people are used to hearing these terms like uh, suchness and uh, oneness and so on and so forth, without really bringing them together, connecting them. So I think that's one thing I, I tried to do in the second half of the book. So I think the problem of the book was um, those of us in the Soto lineage of Dogen um, are used to, when we study the precepts, there's this, there, there's the sort of absolute never, never, ever kill anything. And, uh, you know, the example of the Jains who wear masks to prevent from breathing in little mites. Um, and then there's the so-called relative, just the conceptual, the contextual world that we live in where we make our um, moral choices. And then there's this mysterious so-called absolute with capital A level of the precepts. And that's where we have Dogen uh, presenting them to us, not as don't steal, but non-stealing. So I think I wanted to see how we get to that. And also what the first half of the book has to do with that, namely our learning to welcome and befriend and so on and so forth. The, 
what the thief in us or the killer in us or the liar in us and so on. And because if we don't do that, then we've kept part of ourselves out. And of course that narrows us down. And, um, but what we're used to thinking ethically or morally is uh, don't, you know, there's stealing and then there's the good version, don't steal, should not. So we're, we, so ethical precepts are always sort of separate from us. I'm here and then there's the precept and I follow it or adhere to it and lots of different words for that. But I think the non, not, not I think, I know, the non-version overcomes that sep separation. So it's non-dual. So it's that we automatically do the, the so-called right thing. Um, and out of the sense of oneness with the other. Um, and the other, of course, could be a person, but could also be the planet or uh, many different things. I mean, I come up with a lot of different examples there. So I think the, the other thing to say is in the first half of the book, which were originally, these were, they were originally Dharma talks and then essays that Tricycle Magazine published. And um, what I recommended was, I, I myself read this and recommended to the reader to, to think, to, to expand this term stealing. I mean, you might say about yourself, well, I've never stolen anything, but do you ever steal attention? Do you ever steal? I mean, there's so many versions of this that we could come up with. So maybe, uh, I'm not sure how this works, but why don't we just open this up and see uh, who has questions or comments or whatever. I don't know how many of you have actually read the book. Um, so here I am. So Doshin, will you take care of calling on people? Sure. And if okay. you'd like me to, unless you'd like I, to. I would love it. I'm feeling completely uh, digitally crippled um, right now, so. Okay. Okay, well, thank you, Mujer Roshi, for that. And I will now call on Annette. Annette, please go ahead. I, th I think you just muted I, yourself. You remuted. I just wanted to say, first of all, how much I loved the book. And it made me look, you know, everyone can say, well, I don't kill and I don't steal and I don't do this and I don't do that. But this really made me look at all the very subtle levels, like you said, uh, stealing attention. Um, when someone's speaking, um, interrupting because what I have to say is more important and I can't wait. And this just put such depth to it that I dearly loved it. And I just wanted to express that. Oh, good. So I'm glad. And of course, it, 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 um, I don't know, try to think how to say this. 
it really enriches and, and makes this alive in our ordinary lives, daily lives. It's like, whoops, I never thought I'd, I did that. But, you know, turns out this might be an example of uh, killing. Yeah. Thank you. Chilgaku? Thanks, Doshan. Thank you, Roshi. Um, in the beginning of the book, in the acknowledgement, you talk about uh, developing an interest in what we reject or split off from ourselves. And initially, I was thinking of, uh, you know, that we reject and split off the parts of ourselves that that we think are are bad or not acceptable and that kind of thing. But later in the book, I came to a, a couple of just astounding um, concepts that I that had never come to me. And I realized, you know what, I split these off as well, even though they are beautiful and positive. So that what they are is um, the, the first concept or, or sentence was that um, that when we take refuge, we don't take refuge in the three treasures, we take refuge as the three treasures. That is so far from anything in my consciousness or anything that I have learned or understood in my practice. And the other was that uh, when let, we take- let me, just, let me just say one thing. There you see the non-duality. Yeah. And Dogen, actually, one of his little essays in the Shobogenzo is about uh, the three treasures and that we are them instead of taking refuge. Or taking refuge means becoming them, I guess. Becoming them, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then a corollary, thank you for that. The corollary was that when we take Chukai, it does not mark the fact that we are Buddhists. But that we're Buddhas, and and I, I I'm still just <laughs> I'm sort yes, of glowing yeah, with yes, both yeah. these concepts that uh, I really thank you for including in this the whole discussion of what the precepts are and and what and how they relate to you know the new non dual yeah. understanding of the precepts. Right. Oh, good. But you know it's interesting because if you really look at the ceremony at least as it's done in this lineage. Um, there's no talk of being a Buddhist. I mean, there probably wasn't such a thing as being a Buddhist. It might have been. Well, actually, I think at Dogen's day there was. But it's a little bit like imagining that St. Paul converted to Christianity. Well, there wasn't such a thing as Christianity, you know. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Suyang? Uh, thank you, Doshin. Um, uh, Roshi, I, if I may, I have two questions. Um, Please. The, the first one is, I was sort of like struck by the word interpenetrate that you used. Yes, yes. And because I kept thinking back to some passages that more or less echo the Tao Te Ching. And, and actually, I kept thinking about the word uh, 
I don't know. I somehow I, I, I guess I, I prefer the word merge, you know, merging with the the the, the merging with the path. So I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts about that. Um, and and my second. Sorry. Why why don't I deal with that first? Um, The problem with merging for for me, well, let me put it another way. Dogen really is so articulate about this, that when there's interpenetration, we do not lose our identities, even though they are no longer conceptual. So the trouble with merging is that it becomes you know, as it's used in psychology and so on, it, it, it's as if one has lost the, what he would call the absolute particularity of the two mergers, uh, sorry, the two interpenetrators. So I think that's why, um, you know, and the, the term in Zen is interpenetrating. It's, it's not my term and it's, uh, and I think that's why. So, but that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. So. And, but also, uh, how how does that relate to Thich Nhat Hanh's interbeing? Well, t- what Thich Nhat Hanh does is beautifully, is to try to not try to succeeds in, or, or let me say it another way. He deals with emptiness on its other side namely interpenetration. I mean, emptiness is, the emptiness of anything uh, is, uh, it no longer has a self nature, it no longer has, you know, something uh, that persists over time or whatever. And um, so anything, as I say it, like to say it, anything is what it is only because of its connections to everything else. And that's what he means by interbeing. And I can't remember the which little book of his, I think it's called Interbeing, but the other title could have been Emptiness. Okay, thank you. Um, so my, my other question is rather vague because I, I can't find the exact passage, but there was something in your book that referred to I think it I think it referred to Dogen criticizing yes I think Rinzai yeah. and yeah. and the person with no rank can you explain that a little bit yeah uh it was, it was very surprising to find that or that I mean it made me very happy because of course Dogen um for Dogen we can we need to become one with Everything, nothing's excluded, including when I make myself somebody, a person of rank, or when I'm angry, or when I'm whatever, that being able to interpenetrate with that is, he doesn't exclude anything. So there's one passage where he talks about anxiety. And of course, Rinzai was a lot earlier than Dogen. And I think was really trying. It's, I think the thing about Rinzai is that compared to the patriarchs that preceded him, he started talking about the person and what it is to wake up and so on. They 
they were more talking about, uh, you know, the universe as it were, and how reality has changed for us when we wake up. But he was, I think this is a turning point in the history of Zen where there's more emphasis on the actual person. And so a person of rank uh, is, you know, I'm a this and not a that, or I'm this rank and not that rank, et cetera. And becoming a person of no rank is to become selfless. So what Dogen wanted to do was to remind us that all this stuff that would not be included in our rank, we really have to embrace. It's part of reality. Okay. Does that help? Yes. Okay, good. Thank you. Welcome. Joshin Rashi? Hey, Joshin. Bujo Roshi, what a privilege. And so, so thrilled to have you here. Hi there. Um, and what a beautiful gift and legacy you have given future generations uh, in the study of the precepts. And along those lines, I was curious, you know, given your own background and training, what difference you think it makes given the way you work with your groups using the, you know, the repeating questions, the monologues, what, how that uh, you think facilitates or helps with what you're saying, the, in, the interpenetration, the, what do you see about that kind of work that is different to how you studied the precepts? Of course, I did a lot of that in the diamond approach, as, as you know. Um, well, I think the difference it makes is that, as I say in the beginning of the book, um, well, I think when I'm introducing the essays and, and the exercises, that I could practice by myself with the precepts and say, uh, I never steal anything and then read these essays and say, oh my God, maybe I do steal attention. And I need to accept that, to embrace it, all this language we use about this. But to actually do that in the presence of another person is, is uh, can be anxiety producing, can prevent a certain depth from happening. And I think that the, the repeating, the same question repeated over and over and over again for 10 minutes can derail one and take one deeper. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I mentioned later in the book is that I found that people have the experience working with another person in this way where there's no crosstalk of suddenly having that experience of oneness with one's partner. Or let me put, I mean, there are many other ways of saying that, having the experience of the suchness of the other and of myself or, you know, an interpenetration as it were. Right, which is a very different story to the typical 
projections, idealizations yeah. <laughs> that can run rampant yeah. in sanghas. Uh, and so, yes, I think it really does allow for a transparency and authenticity and am delighted and, and, that we're... and an equality. Yes, it levels yeah. the playing field. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Roshan? Uh, thank you, Doshan. Yeah, uh, this is uh, wonderful um, to, to meet you, uh, uh, Roshi. Um, I, I will admit that I, I have, have the book, but I have only started reading it. So um, if there are other folks uh, on this Zoom call who have not yet read it, I have now destigmatized um, having read the book and feel free to ask questions and, and uh, uh, just respond to, to what's happening uh, in the moment. Um, but this, this, uh, your, your presentation and discussion just, um, just reminded me of, uh, you know, um, uh, when I took the precepts, which was uh, a very long time ago. Um, and, uh, the, the, uh, the, the experiential way that the, that the village Zendo teachers, um, uh, sort of, uh, allowed, uh, each of us to, uh, uh, open up to um, these concepts uh, in our own lives. Um, uh, and when you were talking about, um, you know, the precept of not killing um, at, uh, early on this evening, uh, it, you know, some of the memories of that, that time 20 plus years ago came back to me of, you know, the way in which, um, you know, uh, we can, we can, uh, as a result of our, our upbringing or, or, or societal expectations, uh, suppress or kill aspects of ourselves. And, and it was that discussion that allowed me to open into those aspects of myself that I had been suppressing. Um, uh, and it, it, it goes sort of that same way, uh, you know, for each of each of the precepts. So I, I do, I do uh, appreciate sort of um, uh, what I think you're offering in the book, although I haven't, I can't speak to that directly. Um, but also just, you know, this, uh, this, this, the value of the precepts in our lives um, uh, is uh, by using, you know, and of course, the village Zendo has the three um, uh, ways of, of, of looking at them, um, Bodhidharma's um, sort of coming from the perspective of emptiness and, and Dogen's perspective and, and the Zen peacemaker's perspective. So, so we get to look at these wonderful um, uh, uh, teachings from, from many different perspectives. Um, and I think it just, you know, it, it is, a, is a way um, at a certain point, um, uh, actually probably at many points in our practice, of uh of of opening up to to what the precepts are in our lives so that was not a question that was a statement you can respond to it as you as you see fit <laughs> well i think it makes me want to say two things one is um i can remember the second one um, one is um i think how to say this that the the important thing here is that we finally stop treating the precepts as precepts that I naturally 
don't steal in a certain situation. But I think what I realized, uh, thanks to Dogen and the Jukai ceremony, mystery to me about the Jukai ceremony was always, hang on a minute, I'm going to say that. It's the wonderful thing about Zoom. We're in, in each other's lives, <laughs> whether we like it or not. <laughs> what I realized, uh, I mean, I, you know, Dogen says, and I quote him at the end of the book, there are bodhisattvas who have become Buddhas millions and millions of times. And I thought, oh, bingo, that helps me understand this mystery of why the Jukai ceremony has so much being one, being Buddha, being one with in the beginning. And then at the end, it's this, will you maintain it? Will you maintain it? And, I, and of course, you know, I think some, some of our ideas about when we begin practice that somehow waking up is some permanent thing. And it's not. And, you know, as Dogen says, we are, we are creatures who have a vast and giddy karmic consciousness. And it's always there. I mean, it becomes, our relationship to it becomes completely different uh, as practice goes on and our relationship to the precepts. As, you know, Bernie said to me, there are precepts without Buddhism, but there's no Buddhism without precepts. And I think the important thing here, as I mentioned in the book, I can't remember exactly how I say this, but big question is where precepts come from. You know, did a group of people get together? And well, no, because we see these similarities across culturally and so on. So somehow, I don't know exactly right now how to articulate this, but somehow they are the deepest aspects of reality. And it takes, uh, it can take a lifetime to actually live out of that. Well, no. enjoy the book. There will be a quiz when you're done. So let us know. I, I look forward to it. No, I, I love Bernie's statement as well. And, you know, I, I think again, from, from the early stages of my practice, I I, uh, uh, I recognized that it's impossible to have a peaceful mind um, uh, if your actions um, are not cultivating peace. Yeah. So. And, and vice versa. Right. That peaceful mind enables one. Right. Exactly. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rishi. Okay. Hey there. After all these years, you and I doing all that time together with Bernie. Uh, and so, you know, I just can't help but want to talk about that. But first, uh, just I had the privilege uh, to read your book uh, before it was just before it was published. And, you know, it. I've told everybody it blew me away. And for me, it is the, the text for our study at this time. It well, is, it is I, perfect. I, I do want to say one thing, which is I think you and, and Shingde 
uh, were the ones who really deeply read the book. <laughs> and, you know, people who are asked to do a blurb, I, I can sympathize with it, don't always do that. But so it was much appreciated both by me and by Shabala. Yeah. And I immediately said, this is our book now for, for our community. This is our text uh, for our Jukai. It is marvelous. So my question is, we did spend all that time together studying with Bernie the last few years. Uh, I just uh, have so many memories of us together and with Bernie. And I, what could you just kind of point to what his vibe, how his vibe is alive in the teachings that you give? Because, you know, I we, we like to remember Bernie a little bit. Well, I, I tell you, I as I was doing this book, I realized how much he embodied Dogen. Ah, uh-huh. I really do. And I think what I just said about the, uh, you know, the mystery to me, which of the Dukai ceremony, and then understanding, you know, yeah. waking up is not to be in some beloved state forever. So that's one thing. But the other that I meant to mention earlier with one of the questions is, Bernie was deeply, you know, as his practice came away from the sort of standards and monastic, you know, uh, community practice, um, it was what he called the rejected parts of society. Yeah. Which split off. And I say somewhere in the book that I, you know, for me, it was the individual that was of interest, whereas for him, it was at large. So that's very much alive for me. That's beautifully said. That is because we have to hold both. Exactly. All the time. And they are in many ways a function of one another. Exactly. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So nice to see you. Yeah. Concho. Thank you. Thank you, Roshi. It's wonderful to hear you again, see you again. Um, I have a question. I, I have to confess, I'm, I'm just on, I'm only on page 28. Okay, so well, you can take the exam together. <laughs> um, um, I, you said something interesting earlier about how um, waking up is not a permanent thing. It's kind of like, it's, it's our practice, right? We have to practice it. How, how would you recommend day, a daily practice with, this, with the precepts? A daily approach because you know it's very it's very easy for us to, we, we take the precepts we do we saw our rakasus and all that kind of stuff and they sort of like kind of fade away a little bit they pop up every now and then but it is you know it, i i more and more it's becoming apparent to me that it really is like a real guidebook for just day-to-day yeah. actions and how would you recommend going about about that well i i think that the the clue if you will comes from it's the same practice i mean i that the becoming aware of every little item in one's um intentions and actions and feelings and so on and so forth is i think uh, deeply deeply what the practice is all day long so it's not about how to be good to other people 
because being naturally good to other people comes from a constant and deep and welcoming practice of, oh God, there I go again, without any judgment. So it's learning how to be judgment-free in a sense with one's own uh, self. And, uh, and I think that with the precepts, um, it's similar. I mean, do I want to kill Trump? Yes. And what would it be like to be free of that? To be whatever, you know, to experience myself and see other people as part of the great unfolding. And that doesn't mean that we don't um, criticize, try to change things, etc. But I think it's the the constant awareness. Jesus, I just stole the attention that was being given to this speaker. Thank you, Raji. Yeah. Thank you. Sushin? Yes, hi, thank you, and nice to meet you. Um, so the question that I have um, was a part, a piece of how I understood um, the way you described the practice in your sangha in the first part of the book. And uh, it made me really curious about like what kind of impact does that have on a group of people? I, I got the impression, that, uh, and maybe I, I misinterpreted that um, this was an ongoing work, not just something you do for a few days before Jukai, but it was actually a practice that the whole Sangha engages in. And and I just like, what do you see? You know, like how does that how does that live in the Sangha? And then I also wondered, like, well, how would it be as a new person coming in? And how do you how do you get new people in and and bring them along and and so just, I don't know, if you could speak to that. Yeah. Well, um, first, uh, confession. So No Traces Sangha is actually a very small group that has not encouraged people to come and start practicing Zen. I think that will change with my successors, the three Dharma holders. And um, so the group, we have a small, say maybe 20 at the most, who might show up for a retreat, but on Thursday nights we meet and that will be sacred. Whatever else expanding we will start doing will be independent of that. So what has happened in this group is that people have worked on the precepts, they've worked, we've done other things with these kinds of exercises, but there's a freedom and a safety in exposing oneself. And Zen is not famous for that. You know, we come and we sit, you know, I remember years ago running into somebody I sat with for a couple of years in the first years of Bernie in the early, early 80s. And we ran into each other on the subway. And there was a kind of intimacy there 
that was a function of our having sat in silence with each other. And then, of course, we leave and go home. And uh, so I think what's happening, what's happened to Zen since then is there's a lot. For example, this book discussion. You know, there, there are things happening where students talk to each other and work with each other. And it's not just a totally uh, formal Zen practice. But I think that the whatever can be done in a sangha to enable people to feel, to learn how to expose themselves because you're exposing yourself to yourself also. So that split off stuff that we need to embrace and bring into the wholeness of what each of us can be um, is so deepened by being able to do that in the presence of another person who is just quietly listening with no talk, no crosstalk, no judgment, no analysis, no, you know, maybe you should, whatever, you know. So I think there's an openness, I mean, open, open, openness, the word for me. She has cats. Yeah. Oh, surprise. I think you're muted. Yes, I, I did mute myself again. Thank you. Um, I, I don't know if that it answers your question. I mean, stay with it for another few minutes. Yeah, well, it did um, clarify that you have sort of a core group of people, yeah. you know, and you've kind of committed to doing this as part of it's practice. You know, it's not just the Zazen, it's doing this and this is practice. This is what means to practice in your Sangha, um, which is very beautiful. And um well, I'll tell you something. It's just like you don't have a control group, you know, but like, That's right. how are these people different? You know, how are you different from having done this? Um, and you don't know, of course, because you only know what you are. Well, I, it brings a freedom because the self-protecting thing just goes. Right. But I'll tell you something interesting uh, that you're making me remember. I had a student at Sarah Lawrence who she told me this one day and I couldn't believe it. She had a good friend, both of them, Lily White. And they met once a week to investigate their racism. And that meant, and they, they, they you know, bared their whatever in the presence of the other without any conversation, crosstalk, all of that. I was so impressed. I mean, this was years ago, and they just really decided to explore how deeply. And, and if you think about it, think about our racism. I mean, we may not be racist in some obvious sense, 
but to actually go deeply, deeply and notice any small little uh, whatever, judgment or dislike or fear or something. That's to me the heart of Zen practice because it's just the protective stuff falls away it, bit by bit, you know, and yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, J.F. Shaw? Um, yes. Um, thank you, Roshi. Um, your book was amazing. I mean, <laughs> I kept reading parts of it. Um, one, one thing that I, I thought was really interesting, I believe it was in your discussion of the, the anger precept, where you talked about how your group um, yes. got together and talked about all the terrible things they'd like to do to people that had wronged them. And, and you, you talked about how that it brought this wonderful energy and yes. everybody looked um, enlivened oh, and happy. Cheeks. Yes. <laughs> yes. I remember the rosy cheeks. And I thought that was so interesting the way that you could get sort of develop a kind of um, usable energy from from considering what you might consider your faults or or to from expressing your your um um what's the word bad impulses or whatever i, I just wonder if you want to talk some more about that yeah well i i think what's interesting to just go to the preceding question as well is um we think we know ourselves and we don't and these kinds of exercises really uh, reveal more in a, in a depth way of ourselves to ourselves for openness and embracing and no judgment and no splitting off, pushing away, et cetera. Um, you know, that, that was years ago, we used to meet, uh, in a church basement in the neighborhood. We had this big circle on chairs. The floor was too damp. <laughs> and so I had told people that this, I was at a small party where the two hosts decided, they started talking about the different ways that they got angry. And then it was decided that they, we should go around the circle. And I remember I was terrified. I thought, I, you know, I don't want to do this. And, and then when it got to me, I was astonished. I mean, I was Dr. Strangelove riding the bomb to <laughs> blow up the whole world. Um, but you can see just in that, oh, my God, do I have to reveal myself? But, it did, but I had no idea of what I was going to reveal or what there was to reveal. It's just the idea of being angry or competitive would be another way of stealing. You know, all, all of that is, uh, 
we, we just sort of stay on the surface with these things. But to truly investigate, I think, goes much deeper when it can be done with other people. Thank you. Mission? Yeah, that was just occurred to me, um, uh, Roshi, you, you, you mentioned, you, you talked about racism of, of three minutes ago. And, you know, in, in the, it, there has been a lot of, of I think, in investigation recently in, in the last five years or so of systemic racism and in the context in which we explore the precepts in Fusatsu, um, you know, just and this again gets back to your point of just of going deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, you know, I would probably never have occurred to me at some point in the past um, the privilege that I have as a as a as a white male in the United States, um, uh, and and that 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 in in itself is uh, is a, a you know sort of karmic responsibility um uh that is that is mine to own um so just an observation um because that's a that's an aspect of going deeper um that that i think uh perhaps i only recently became aware of my blind spots in that area right well i'm just thinking i i was thinking of an example of uh you know so we live in a city where there are homeless people but what happens when a white male, dirty, smelly, starts coming towards me. You know, is there some fear? Is there some, as opposed to some compassionate curiosity? You know, it's, uh, so I'm thinking, Enkyo, uh, about Bernie again, because the homeless retreats and the Auschwitz retreat put us in touch with levels that we would not have gone to on our own or in our ordinary lives. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Roshi, is there something that you, you think should be a precept that, that's not a precept? If you well, were precepts? Why don't we hear from you? Anybody have any ideas? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that anger is the one precept in the list that's really about uh, an emotion that's mine, you know. it's uh, So let's think of, you know, don't be envious. Don't be jealous. Don't be, you know, I'm just thinking of emotions here. Don't be so sad. Don't be or don't be sad all the time or whatever. I mean, it sounds silly, but um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? Well, it's interesting that you said you picked don't be jealous, don't be sad. You didn't say don't be happy, like non-being happy, non-being generous, right? So I wonder, even though we're not supposed to reject these parts of ourselves, right? Like, I wonder if you could say something about the formulation of these, which is non, like non-being angry, right? Yes. Like reading yes. Your, I was like, yeah. I want to be well, listening. I, I, right. And I, and this is, you know, I think it's really involves reading the second half of the book carefully and following the thread through. 
is why the exercises in the first part of the book, the, the befriending the failure to keep a precept is required in order to get us to the non-place. And the non-place is, you know, I give the example of my student who had the wonderful example. He has an Airbnb up in New Hampshire and, and he had a couple coming and there was a big flood in New Jersey where they lived so they couldn't come. And the first thing that occurred to him was, oh, now I can find somebody else and get two payments. <laughs> and he was sitting and he, it suddenly hit him you know, and he called these people. They were up to their chests in water. It was a flood. And uh, he called them and just, it, it was a total turnaround for him. But it had no should, shouldn't, anything like that. And I, and I mentioned the fact that he'd done quite a bit of work and sort of opening up to all our, it's kind of, odd way to say it, but our failures to to adhere to the precepts, because they're separate from us when we fail. And they're still separate from us when we succeed. So the non thing is neither succeeding or failing or anything. It's just what naturally happens. I don't know if that helps. I've lost the speaker there. Yes, that oh, it was yes, Doshin. Um, I'm I'm sure other people have have questions. Don't be shy. And there will be an exam, so only for those who don't ask questions. <laughs> um, well, speaking of exams and questions, I wonder if there are ways that this intersects with your teaching or your research as a philosopher that you think would be interesting to, to draw out? Well, happy to say I'm retired now, but um, yes, I, I think, um, you know, I was a kind of joke with Sarah Lawrence is, has, you know, 15 students in a class and then a, and then a one-on-one uh, -on -one with each one of those students. So there's a lot of deep contact with the individual students. And, you know, anytime a student, I mean, it was a joke about me. I, I wasn't aware of the, you know, it wasn't intended as a joke. Or I, I don't think I was aware that I always did this. But a student would come and say, I can't, uh, I can never organize a paper with, and I would say good because then it was about let's go into that first and then we'll figure out how to move beyond that so I, I, I you know I think that not only has the philosopher showed up in my Zen practice and teaching and so on but the other was true as well I think very much my Zen practice showed up in my academic teaching. And I and and also I think a part of it is um, being very aware of the particularity of an individual student. 
there's a cognitive style there that's different from the next person's. And, um, you know, for me, that's Dogen. I mean, you know, <laughs> just occurs, I mean, this isn't from Dogen, but it's certainly, you know, these questions of what what is Buddha in the literature? Um, thoughts and feelings, your thoughts and feelings. What is Buddha? Three pounds of flex. What is Buddha? A dried shit stick. You know, nothing's excluded. including not being able to write a paper. So maybe, um, you know, I used to tell my students if there were no questions, I'd say, you know, your parents are paying good money for this. You better take advantage of the opportunity to ask a question. Um, we have a couple of people wanting yes. to take that opportunity. Um, Shuka, go ahead. Yes, I don't know if this is appropriate, and I, I haven't read the book, although now I'm really dying to get it. But, but everything um, appropriate, see. <laughs> I wonder, um, could you say a few words about how you came to Zen? Well, I, I was raised uh, Episcopalian and, um, and I loved it. And I think from a very early age, and certainly once I became an academic, I had a very deep interest in religion, religious traditions, what it was. And I used to teach a course called Philosophy of Religion. For, it was for freshmen, again, 15 or no, and for the freshmen, there was 12 kids, you know, so, and they, and the courses last a whole year. So it's a really opportunity. But I always said that the word philosophy fooled them because the course was really about what the great traditions have in common at their mystical core. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is part of interpenetration is that they really do interpenetrate. There are no boundaries around them and we've so often treated them as if they have boundaries. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I don't know, I, I think there's something that I love about Zen, uh, but I think it was the opportunity to have a real teacher. So when Bernie Glassman came, it could have been another tradition, you know. Mm. Thank you for that. Thank you. Joel? Thank you. Uh, Roche, I just want you to know that um, you've uh, held me and held my attention uh, all afternoon much more than I expected. So that's been a nice surprise. Thank you. And I'm still back with the question, 
that was brought up a few minutes ago about uh, would you can you suggest any additional precepts? Oh. And I thought it was a great question. And then one popped to my mind. So I'd like you to maybe Please, respond to this. Um, I don't know exactly how to put it, but uh, thou shalt not take any of this shit personally. <laughs> any of this stuff personal. That's a good one. Mm. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Roshi, this has been an um, extraordinarily powerful and searching, uh, delightful uh, exchange among all of us uh, with you. And I, I'm wondering whether this is what you mean by working um, with shining insight. Or, do, or does that mean something more than, it's hard to imagine what could be more than what this conversation has been, but 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 that's what came to mind as I sort of look back over this last hour. Well, I, you know, in the book, I, I think it's a whole chapter, I can't remember, but I um, talk about the fact that, you know, I remember Bernie always used to say, we know this meaning the non-conceptual or the oneness. Mm -hmm. And we don't know we know it. Yeah. And I I am very clear. And, and it, it's also the kind of teacher I think I've always been as an academic, which is to find the stones that can begin to get you over to the bridge, you know. Um, so insight, to, to think about suddenly understanding something. It's like a, you know, some, something, something in our language. It's funny. Um, earlier, this might be worth reading because I'm not sure I wrote this book. It's a, I think the faceless fellow, fellow wrote it. Um, Yeah, it was, um, I'm not going to find it here, but it was that that when we suddenly understand something, my my specialty is Wittgenstein, and he, I actually wrote a paper about him on this same subject with the Advaita teacher I know. Um, we, we're, there's a moment out of time, and when that, in which that insight happens. Yeah. And our minds go to what we now understand, not to that moment. And I always encourage my students to, to, to pay attention to those aha moments mm -hmm. or laughing, getting a joke that, you know, you just, it's out of time. Yeah. Or, um, and and the language, this is what I was looking for here. The, the language is a receptive one. It hit me that. Or I burst out laughing. 
these are these are sort of time out of time uh, things, and it's it's not to use Dogen's famous words. It's not me carrying myself forward, but I'm and you know he uses the expressions of suddenness that's like a sneeze, and and those experiences something leaps out at us, and it's this is what we don't notice. Yeah, and I encourage people to notice that. I understand. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yoko? Yes. Hi. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm reading the book for the second time now. And <laughs> I really want to thank you. I'm seeing a lot of things I missed the first time around. And happens to me too. It's really inspired. And I think, you know, I love the creativity of in the way and the sense of the way the language is used. And also your choice of authors to quote from like the Roach poem. I'd never heard of Muriel Rickeyser. And so oh, it sent me down a whole path. Like I've got to find out who this person is. Yeah, because that amazing. is amazing. Amazing. Just to read that poem, which, you know, someone talked about racism. I guess it was you. I mean, you could substitute a few words and, and you've got a lot of depth in that. <laughs> and I think the question I have is one I sort of posed with a, another Sangha member earlier. Like, what would happen? Would our Sangha we're so private in many ways, you know, we do individual yes. interviews. Yes, exactly. You know, would we to try and exercise this like this? Could we, I don't even know if I can handle it. I can't even answer those questions for myself, but that, that's kind of, I guess, something I wanted to throw out there. And again, with my deep gratitude, I'm going to keep reading. Well, you know, you know, if one of the things you could do is find two or three other people and run an experiment. Just try doing one of the exercises. Tell me a way that you kill. You know, or, well, whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. And also, I think how how to work with that knowledge without the contradiction of becoming deeply uh, self-conscious about everything either and paralyzing ourselves, you know, because it looks like the other side of the coin to that to me, right? I'm worried, you know, that's cause for concern, perhaps. Well, I I, I think that's the, um, you know, let's say I discover in doing one of these exercises that I, I'm very competitive and I tend to steal attention when somebody's, when if the room is paying attention to somebody and I, you know, somebody used the example of interrupting and I, I can't wait to get what I have to say in there. I think the older we get, it's about memory. <laughs> I'm not going to remember what I wanted to say. Um, and uh, now, where was I going with this? I can't remember. See, there we go. Where was I going? I can't, I'm completely lost, so. Okay. <laughs> and, and guess what? I don't mind. But I, I, I think I'll raise my hand if it comes to me. Cool. Jan, go ahead. 
Well, I am in. Thank you very much, Roshi Baker. I have not read the book. I can't wait. I also missed the first half hour of the talk, but I I got here. And I'm it's being excited. recorded. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So I am in the um, waning weeks coming up to taking my Jukai. Yes. And... Um, you know, we've spent a year, and and um, the book we've used is is um, Diane Rosetta's "Waking Up to What You Do," and so much of it to me that's the essence of this. And then you've just affirmed this over and over. So um, I'm I'm still I've got the last bit of the placard to work on my my rakasu, and I have to give a dharma talk to. Um, the sangha I'm working with on Tuesday. And I realized I'm going to make the talk. I, I know what the talk will be. It's how not to sew a rakasu. Because the rakasu process brought up for me all these obvious, I had to be forced to see what I do. First of all, I can't do it. What am I going to do? I can't use my hands. I have carpal tunnel. I don't know how to, I won't have the time. I mean, all that. And then of course, one reason why I'm still working on it three weeks before, before Jukai is because I procrastinate. And it really hit me as I was doing, taking out some stitches, actually. I was going to leave them because I was in a rush. And I realized that's something I do too. I yes. don't pay attention and then yes. I don't honor that. Yes. So every bit of that process, as you were saying, everything we do out there. Um, so um, this has just been a, a real, a real gift. Putting the the cap on it as I start to to know how to sew and not sew my life. Thank you. You know, I I just want to make a comment about the Jukai ceremony about being a Buddha, not a Buddhist, which is really important. And uh, I remember procrastinating many, many years ago. And Bernie um, Sensei then um, in Dyson, seeing him, he said, uh, Nancy said, what's happening? You know, it's like, why, why is this taking so long? And I never had this thought in my entire life. But what popped out of me, as if it were about becoming a Buddhist, as opposed to something else, what came out was, what about the Eucharist? And he, without missing a beat, said, it will only deepen it. And the Eucharist is communion, you know, and with the wine and the bread. And, yeah. And so there are no boundaries. You know, being a Buddhist as opposed to something else is to make boundaries. So the interpenetration of you know, the, I used to say at the beginning of my course, if you think of a, of a triangle with five things coming to a point at the top, and each one of them is a religious tradition, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, 
And way down at the bottom here, people kill each other in the name of their religion, their identity, taking it on as an identity. And, and then the, the deeper you go, you really, you're not becoming more and more of whatever the ist is. You're, you're deepening more and more um, a way of being in the world. And the, the deeper you go, the closer you are to the other traditions. You have more in common this way than you do with your own tradition. So just remember, this is a moment in, in the ceremony is so moving. And those, that's the other thing about sudden understanding and laughing is to pay attention to those moments when you move. Because we don't know what it is. Afterwards, we could say. So the ceremony is very moving to the person who's receiving the precepts. And that's about being a Buddha. The end of the ceremony is asking you to, you know, affirm your commitment to the precepts, which is completely different. Yeah. So wonderful you're doing this. Somebody asked in the chat if we could get access to the paper um, about Wittgenstein, which you mentioned, which I will also take the opportunity to ask if there are any connections with Wittgenstein that you wrote about or otherwise um, that you'd like to, to tease out. Well, I, I the book that my life has been about heading towards is Wittgenstein, in his early work, which was a very logical kind of thing, um, mentions mysticism. And this is a sort of mystery to the old British analytical philosophers. You know, what, why does he do this? Um, so that's a book that I want to write. And it, the title will be living and philosophizing without a why, Wittgenstein and the mystical. So it's really explaining how the later work, he thought of philosophy as being like an illness and that what he had to offer was not more theory, but rather therapy to cure us of the generalizing illness that we all know, sort of generalizing, abstracting illness. Um, so living and philosophizing without a why is extremely Zen. I mean, that's what it's about. Why does the whatever, whatever, you know, is not asking for an explanation because there is no why. In the moment when we, the, the moment of spontaneity, let's think of it that way, there's no why. Why did you suddenly I don't know, you know. Anyway, those are. I I can send you the essay. Okay, thanks, and then I can share it with either the person who who asked, or I can just email it to the whole group if if your publisher doesn't mind that kind of copyright. I, it's not been published, so I'll put that on the cover. Yeah, more the better. Uh, Shutoku. Hey, Shutoku. <laughs> 
Hello, Roshi. So hey, hi there, both of you. Hello. I have a question about uh, virtue. Yes. If there is such a thing in Zen. Well, I don't think the word occurs, however, it would be whatever the, you know, it, it, I mean, that's an interesting question. It's like, but what is virtue? That's the question. <laughs> well, you're combining it with what is Zen, so I'm, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we might say that somebody, and here's the language philosopher in me, we might think of somebody as very virtuous who in no way thinks of virtue. And that doing this as opposed to that is virtuous. Um, so, I mean, it's also interesting that I think the virtue, virtuous, has a kind of dualistic ring to it. I don't think. Yes. It, yeah. I, I was wondering about the precepts and it, it feels a little bit like a stumbling block. Yes. Notion of virtue and, and yes, uh, exactly. And, and, but how is that resolved? And I, it's a struggle, I think. Um, well, I, I, you know, I think some people are, you know, I mentioned in the book, I have two friends who are the most impeccable ethical people I know. And every time I have dinner with one of them, I come away inspired, you know. And it, but that's a dualistic thing. And that's great. I mean, it's very important to have some impeccably ethical people, which we're missing these days in our country and politics and so on and so forth. Um, but I think that's different from the one who is naturally good, I'll use that word. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's very important. And those, all those times that we are not a Buddha, and to remind you that uh, Dogen says there are bodhisattvas who have become Buddhas millions and millions of times, which indicates that, you know, that's a moment out of time. Um, but when we're not Buddha, we, the precepts are, can be very dualistically, you know, I don't know, is this going to be stealing or not? You know. I, I want to have some transparency here. One translation that Roshi Enkyo gave for my name, Shutoku, was guardian of virtue. So I'm trying to figure out what that uh -huh. means. <laughs> well, I would nail her. <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is, I, as I know you, it's perfect. It is. But, it, 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 you know, this is... First of all, our ordinary language and our ordinary lives and our ordinary everything, we don't get rid of that. 
we don't throw that out. I mean, that's one of the big mistakes that some people make about Zen practice. So this is a great name. It's a big job though, I have to say. Looking forward to seeing you guys in person. Yes, we Likewise. are too. Um, Greg, did I see you raising your, your hand? No? Okay. Um, I think I've just about had it. Okay, all right. Um, well, thank you very much for, for being here. This was this was really special. Um, as part of our the end of our discussion, um, which you're welcome to stay for, we pick another book to read next time. Um, are are there any books that you've read recently or that mean a lot to you that you'd recommend that we consider? Nothing um, pops up, but. Okay. 10 minutes from now, if so, I'll email you. Okay. All right. Um, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been, thank you. This has been thank very you, enjoyable for me. And I, I've really appreciated the questions. And, and so thank you all. Hope to see you in person someday. <laughs>